Thank you for listening to a message from the Bowden Church of Christ. For more information, visit www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. That's www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Bowden Church of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing to you and helps you to serve God and find satisfaction in Him alone. And now, our speaker. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see all of you tonight. Uh, Thank you for being here. We, as our plan has been for the new year, are in the second Sunday night of the month. And what the second Sunday night of the month means is that I have dipped into the Q&A box out in the lobby, and I have drawn out, not by random, I hand-selected the first three questions. I chose out those three questions, and uh, we're going to answer those questions this evening uh, that have been submitted by you as a congregation. Now, uh, I left everything up here just to remind you of what we talked about, and I'm going to remind you that our entire theme for 2021 is going to be for us to be together. Now, in order for Q&A nights to be something that's beneficial, we're going to have to work together. You're going to have to put the questions in, and then I'll get them out, and I'll answer them. That's going to be something we're going to have to do together. And uh, we've got a good bit in there, but uh, we're going to need to keep filling those up, keep putting questions in in there. Uh, I'm working on having an option where you can submit a question on our website. If you prefer to do things technologically, it would be a pretty simple form that you'll be able to fill out. But uh, if you don't see any Q&A cards in front of you, then that means it's already been picked up or, you know, a youngin has grabbed it. So you can pick one up in the blue box that is next to the Q&A box that Tiffany made for us that's out in the lobby. And there's pens out there. You can pick that up, write that question down and drop it in the box. And then uh, it'll be there for me to look at and to answer. And if I'm not here, I may, you know, sick one of you men on answering a few questions out of that box if you're just uh, willing to to be a glutton for punishment, maybe. Um, So we're going to start our Q&A night. Now, I'm not going to just dive in, you know, headfirst into the pool. We're just going to kind of dip our our toe in tonight. We're not going to do anything controversial or real deep yet. There's a couple that have been put in there. I have often joked that uh, if I ever put a Q&A box out in the lobby, one of the first questions I would see in there is, is it okay to celebrate Jesus' birth? Because I've had a discussion with a lot of people on that. Lo and behold, one of you, uh, uh, I can't think of a word that would justify what I feel about you, but you put it in. So uh, next month, the second Sunday night of the month, that's one of the questions we're going to be answering. So if you're interested in hearing uh, the take on that, you can be here for that Sunday night and, and hopefully that'll be beneficial but we'll uh, do three questions tonight and then uh, next Sunday night or next second Sunday night we'll do three more questions we'll kind of follow that pattern Uh, some nights we may get a question that it could take the whole lesson to answer somebody put in a question about uh, what's the new heavens and the new earth in the book of Revelation and so that might take a whole lesson to go through just that one question But uh, make sure you keep that filled out, keep questions in that box. Uh, We're going to keep plenty of cards out there. So uh, I appreciate you all for submitting those questions. Um, To my knowledge, every single one of the questions that I'm going to answer tonight, um, uh, well, I know for, for a fact two of them, but I think by the writing, maybe all three of them came from someone who's not an adult. 
And so I'm really excited about that. I think these questions came from uh, younger kids, maybe teenagers. uh, And so I'm excited to answer those questions tonight. I'm going to have the questions on the board. You're going to be able to see it. I have just a couple of bullet points under each question. We're going to talk about it. And then at the end, I'll deliver an invitation. And so we'll do it just like a normal sermon, have an invitation at the end. So without any further ado, let's dive in to question number one. And here it is. Y'all asked for it. So whatever question you put in the box, you asked it, and I will try to answer. This is question number one. This is probably one of my favorite questions that I saw. In the Q&A box, someone submitted a question this way. Is God a ghost or does God have legs? Is God a ghost or does God have legs? Now let me admit to you that this is an amazingly insightful question. And let me explain to you why. I know for a fact that this was asked by a younger child, but it is a question that all of us at some point have considered. We might not have asked it this way. We might have asked it this way. What does God look like? Now, we ask that question because we're visual people, right? We want to know what God looks like, mainly because we know what we look like. We know what animals look like. So what does God look like? And a lot of times what we do when we try to explain God is we try to relate God naturally to ourselves. We try to relate him to the qualities that we have, how we look. And the Bible does that in many places. For instance, in Psalm 34 and verse 15, the Bible tells me that God has ears, God has eyes, And God has a face. Psalm 34 and verse 15 is quoted in 1 Peter. And this is what the psalmist says. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from earth. Even in other places, John chapter 10 and verse 29, the Bible tells me that God is said to have a hand. John 10, 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, Jesus says. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Now in the Bible, what the biblical writers often do is they try to describe God in terms that you and I would understand. God has eyes. He looks down on his children. How many times have you heard someone say that God is looking down on us? right? His face is turned away from those that do evil. That means God doesn't acknowledge those who do evil. He's not in agreement with those who do evil. He turns his face away. So the Bible in some places does relate God to ourselves, that in some way he has characteristics like us. But truly, how does the Bible say God looks? Is he a ghost? Does he have legs? What does he look like? Well, John chapter 4 says in verse 24 that God is spirit. Now, it's It's very interesting that in the text it doesn't say that God is a spirit. Uh, That's something we need to point out. But that God is described as spirit or spiritual in nature. The Bible doesn't say that God is a spirit, but that he is spirit. And what we take that to mean is that God in and of itself cannot be described in words that you and I could put on paper or that we could say with our mouth. The Bible says, for instance... In 2 Timothy, that God lives in a light so bright we can't see him. He lives in inapproachable light. 2 Timothy, Paul writes that. Now, sometimes the Bible uses this language of human descriptions to help us understand, but what this is called is symbolic language. And we use this 
symbolic language all the time. We try to use what we understand to describe something that is almost ununderstandable. And that's what the Bible does when it describes God. Imagine trying to tell someone what a slug looked like who had never seen a slug. Could you imagine trying to describe that to somebody? Try to find somebody that's never seen a slug and explain to them, this is what a slug looks like. That'd be pretty difficult, right? Slimy, kind of like a, I don't know, a weird vine of sausage that's alive and it's got these eyes on it. But if you put salt on it, it doesn't do the same thing a vine of sausage does, right? So trying to explain a slug, what it is, without using terms that someone would maybe be familiar with, they'd never seen it, it'd be difficult. That's the same thing that we understand about God. It's, It's hard to explain God when you and I actually cannot see him. We can't physically look at him like we could, you know, what does Josh look like? Well, you could come up here and you could examine me. What what do I look like? Okay? It's hard to do that with God. There are a few people, though, in the Bible who have tried to describe God. And we're going to read these two passages. Uh, I'm going to put both of them on the screen. And uh, you can go ahead and be taking your Bibles there. I don't have the full passage on the screen. But you can take your Bibles there and uh, we're going to read some passages that try to describe God in what these two writers saw. Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 1, Ezekiel and John tried to explain what God looks like when they were privileged to have a picture into that realm. Ezekiel chapter 1 is going to be the first passage we turn to, and verse 26 is where we're going to begin. Ezekiel 1, 26. This is what the Bible says. Above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. Anytime you see God, he's said to be sitting on a throne. So there was a likeness of a throne. In appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a man with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. Remember, we said God, he dwells in a light, so bright we can't see him. There was brightness all around. Verse 28, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud, the rainbow, on the rain of day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. Ezekiel, communicating what he saw in Ezekiel chapter 1, said that what he saw was so great he fell on his face. So Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28, you see some of the language Ezekiel tries to use to describe God. Okay, Another passage, Revelation chapter 1, John wrote this. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Again, this idea of light. 
Now we know from what the Bible tells us that the Bible tries to communicate in human terms what God looks like, but God does not look like us because God is spirit. You remember in Philippians chapter 2 it said that Jesus didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was in the form of God in heaven, but he came to earth and he put on the form of man or the form of a servant. So those two forms are obviously different. At one point, the form of God. In the next point came to earth the form of man. So the form of God and the form of man are two completely different things. And there's a difference between us and God. So how do you describe God? What does God look like? Well, I don't know. I know what the Bible says. And I know that these people tried to use amazing language to communicate what God looked like. Another question associated in this, you know, does God have legs? I kind of use that to say what does God look like. The other one is, is God a ghost? Now, this question probably comes up a lot more often than you may realize. You probably thought it when you were a child because we say God is God and he's there, but God is everywhere. And God is everywhere, yet you can't see him anywhere because God is unseeable by the eye of those that are human. And so, is God a ghost? He's there, but I can't see him, but you're saying he's everywhere. Is God a ghost? Well, the Bible uses some language to depict God that would seem what we would think ghost-like. Now, the question of, are ghosts real? That, that's a question for a Q&A box, for instance. We just happen to have one in the lobby. We're not going to talk about whether or not the ghost question is, is valid or not. But the Bible does describe Jesus doing some things that we may say are ghost-like, how people would describe ghosts, right? In one instance, in John chapter 8... Jesus is said to be amongst people that were going to try and stone him. And the King James says that he hid himself and then went through the midst of them and exited. Well, that sounds a lot like what people would describe a ghost. Not another case, uh, Luke 24, the disciples were meeting in the upper room after Jesus was said to have risen from the grave. They had the door locked, or this is John 20, they had the door locked because they were afraid of the Jews. And the Bible says Jesus came amongst them. And stood amongst them. A lot of scholars say it means he just appeared in the room as if to walk through a wall. There's a lot of questions about that. So is God a ghost? God is spirit. And a spirit is not spirit. God is spiritual. And he exists in all eternity. Does he have legs? Well, the Bible seems to indicate he's got feet. So maybe he does have legs. We don't really know what God looks like. We know that every time someone saw him, they saw brightness. They saw beauty like the rainbow in the sky, like beautiful metal. That's what God looks like according to the Bible, at least. That's the best that I can come up with from God's Word. So hopefully that answers the question. But the main question that the Bible answers is that while we might not know what God looks like now, when we go to be with Him, we will see Him as He is. And that's important. One day we will see God. And that will be in eternity when we're beyond sin. Okay, so that's question number one. Is God a ghost? Does He have legs? The Bible says he has feet and hands and eyes and a mouth and a face. And uh, we can take all that to be symbolic for a description of God. Okay, question number two. Oh, I forgot to advance the slides. I apologize. Question number two, and this is probably one of the most interesting questions I got in the box. Again, from someone who is younger in years. Is it scriptural to have a graveyard at your church or not? Is it scriptural to have a graveyard? a pretty interesting question, a unique one to say the least. And to answer this question, I need to begin by defining what it means for something to be scriptural. Now, you've probably heard somebody say this before, you know, that is scriptural or that is not scriptural. What people mean when they say that is they're asking, 
is there Bible authority? Can I point to a place in the Bible that says, yes, I can do this, or no, I should not do this? That's what the word scriptural means. And, you know, in a lot of cases, that's a really good question for you, you and I to ask. Does the Bible say we can do that? Does the Bible say we should not do that? We have lived for a long time off the phrase, we speak where the Bible speaks, and we are silent where the Bible is silent. But let me admit to you that we need to be very careful with that phrase because there are simply some things and some places that the Bible does not speak to. Does the Bible give us principles? Yes. But there are some things that the Bible does not answer. And let me admit to you, in my search to answer this question, I simply found no place where the Bible tells me what role the church should have in the processing of those that have passed on. Jesus does say in one instance, let the dead bury their own dead, but most people agree that's more of a symbolic statement than let dead people bury their own dead or let spiritually dead people bury their dead. And so there's really no indication of what the church has a role in as far as the handling of those who have died. Now, from my research, I found this. I asked the question, I've never been a part of a congregation that had a cemetery, but you may have at some point in your life. I asked the question, why do congregations or churches have cemeteries? And I stumbled on a debate of the difference between a graveyard and a cemetery. And I had no idea that was even a huge argument. But apparently, a cemetery is a public-run uh, place where people are buried. A graveyard is a place where the church owns the property and people are buried. Now, that's what I found in my research. And then I began to find that cemeteries are places in which you can purchase lots to bury people. Maybe you purchase a lot for yourself. My grandfather died a few years ago, and he already had his lot picked. They already had the headstone paid for, the casket paid for, everything was taken care of. He took care of that all in advance. And some of you sitting here in the audience may have done that. You may have all of those steps taken care of so that when you pass, there's no burden or responsibility on your family. But I found that graveyards were actually begun as a way for Christians to have somewhere to be buried without the unbearable financial burden of burying a loved one. Now, I did not realize, because my generation is, is far removed from the generation that purchased burial lots in advance. I, in fact, I don't know of any friends who have done that. I have not done that. My family owns plots, you know, and they say they have them. I've never seen them. I don't know if I want to see them, but uh, they say they do for the whole family, and they purchased them in advance and got plans set. But my generation really hasn't discussed that very much. But there is the responsibility in which... Processing that moment can not only be difficult in the grieving process, but financially as well. I began to do research. I had never done research on how much a burial plot costs. And, uh, guys, that's expensive. Very expensive. That process can be very expensive. And so I found that graveyards were actually begun for the process of relieving some financial burden from people in the congregation who may very well be stretched so thin they couldn't afford the process. Now, when we take it and consider it that way, 
I believe that that matches Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. I don't find any way in which we could say that it would be wrong for a church to operate a graveyard out beside the building because it can serve in a way in Acts chapter 4 of relieving the burden of those that are in, that are in need. I do believe that that would be no problem. Acts chapter 4 says, beginning in verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. No one said to any that the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. Listen to what this passage says. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. Great grace was upon them all, and there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So what happened was the church came together and they sold what they had so that nobody was in need. If you were going to have to go through the burden of a financial responsibility that you could not bear, guess what? If you're a Christian, who should be the first one to your side but the church? And so I don't see any reason to say that it would be unscriptural for a congregation to have that. However, let me state that I've never been a part of a congregation that had a graveyard or a, a graveyard, not a cemetery, a graveyard. But I have known of congregations that have almost split over the handling of a cemetery or a graveyard. Many who will not leave and join to other congregations when two congregations are struggling because loved ones are buried in those places. Now, I can understand the comfort that comes from visiting a place where someone you love is buried, but the Bible does tell us that there is more beyond this life and that once our soul leaves our body, all that's left is a body. And that's all that's there, that the soul has gone to the Hadean realm either to punishment, to torment, or to paradise. And that's where the soul goes. So no, it's not unscriptural, I don't think, for a congregation to have a graveyard. Wouldn't be wrong for Bowden to put a graveyard out here. Not wrong at all. But when that graveyard becomes more important than the good of the church, I think that could pose a problem. So that's question number two. And uh, I really liked that question. That caused me to think more than just a regular question would. All right, question number three, our final one for tonight. Is baptizing babies bad? Is baptizing babies bad? Now, to begin answering this question, you and I need to first ask, and I hope this is a question that you have considered, why are people baptized in the Bible? What's the purpose of baptism? Because we've got to figure out what the purpose of baptism is before we can answer this question. And all the passages that I've got here on the screen indicate to me that baptism is the mode in which my sins are forgiven. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Acts 22 and verse 16 why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And of course, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the Bible indicates to me that baptism is something that someone does in order for their sins to be washed away. Now, let me note that baptism doesn't earn your salvation in any way. It's not a work that is attributed to you, and the Lord says, you, you, you earned your way to heaven. You came down the aisle, you climbed to the stairs, you put on the baptismal robe, and you went down in the water, and you came up. You have earned your way into salvation. That's no, just an act of obedience, like confession and repentance, that when I obey, God knows that I'm serious. And he sees that I've obeyed his command, and so he attributes the hard work of Jesus to my life and his righteousness to which I am saved. 
So I wanted to stick that in there for just a moment. Now, the Bible does indicate to me that, that individuals are baptized in order to have their sins washed away, which leads me to a couple of conclusions. First of all, for someone to be baptized, they need to know that they have sins that need to be washed away. And number two, we have to ask the question, why would someone baptize a child? That's a, that's a big question we have to ask. Why is it? And I actually began to do research. I wanted, in this question, not to operate on my already preconceived notions of why people baptize children. And let me admit to you, what I found was not what I knew. The majority of people that I found baptized children not as a way to ensure their eternal security, but as a way of somewhat dedicating that child to the Lord. I didn't know that until I did this research. But a lot of the articles and the books that I ran across said that people who baptize their children do so in a way to say, I'm dedicating this child to the service of the Lord. Now hold that idea because we're going to circle back around it. I did find people also who said they baptized their children because their children were housing the inherited sins of Adam that were passed to all mankind and that they did not want them to miss the security that comes from being a child of God. One person put it this way. Some people baptize children for them to say, this child is God's. Other people baptize children to say, God now has this child, which are two different ideas. One is to have sins taken away. The other is to dedicate the child to the Lord. Now, without spending all of our time addressing the doctrine of inherited sin, that you and I do or do not have the sins of Adam in our body today because he passed all his sins to mankind, that would be a question for another time. I do believe that it is suffice to say that the Bible does teach me Every person is accountable for their own actions. On the day of judgment, you will answer for your own decisions. Not your spouse's decisions, not your family's decisions, not your preacher's or your elder's decisions. You will answer for your decisions. And those other people will answer for their decisions. And none of us are going to answer for the decisions of the people that came before us. We are accountable to God only for ourselves. The only exception to that is those who teach and lead in the Lord's church. They're responsible for how they teach and lead, but not how people regurgitate or take their information. Okay, So every person is accountable to God. The question then would be, is baptism for children? Well, to have their sins removed? No, because they don't have sins. All the little children that are sitting in this auditorium today that do not know right from wrong, that are learning how the world works and are innocent, are just that. They are innocent before God, and they're right before God. That's a beautiful and encouraging thing. It should be for all of us. We become accountable to God as we begin to make decisions that we know are sinful, and we choose to do so willfully. Would it be wrong to baptize a child to dedicate them to the Lord? Well, that's not necessarily what baptism is for. I don't think that it's wrong for you to say to the Lord, I want to dedicate this child to God's service. Hannah did it in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Mary and Joseph did it with Jesus at the beginning of his life in Luke chapter 1. But let me offer just kind of a bit of encouragement that if we're going to make a covenant with God, God doesn't bide well with broken covenants. We need to be very careful what promises we make to God and what covenants we make with Him. So is baptism for children bad? I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, that does anything bad for the child. 
A child who is baptized does not have any bad things put on their shoulders. It's a decision the parent makes. Is it right? Does the Bible teach us to do that? No, it does not. The Bible teaches us that baptism is a decision that an individual makes in regard to their soul to God. Whether that is to dedicate a child or to have their sins forgiven, baptism isn't for children, it's for believers. And so within the church we practice what is called believer's baptism. People who can actually believe are baptized into Christ and they have their sins washed away at that point. So maybe tonight you uh, may not have had that happen before. Maybe you have never obeyed the gospel. And you need to turn your life over to the Lord. Maybe Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16, 1 Peter 3.21 applies to you and that you have sins that need to be forgiven and you need to obey the gospel and be baptized. Maybe the case is that you had that happen at one point but you've turned away from God. Whatever the case may be tonight, if you need to make things right with God, if you need to become a child of God, I would encourage you to take the attitude of the person who wrote this question and inquire about what God requires of you and make that known as together we stand and as we sing.